chief is here. He's got his uh, chief hat on. I am now holding aloft the ceremonial mace, which means that we are about to come to order, and I want all the privates to be quiet out there. Yes. Already already out there, crowd? (laughs) Yes, well, well, you know, you brought up an interesting point now that you mention it, uh, about the uh, various type of aircraft that are around. Did you know that that there is a a strong belief, and it's more than a belief. As a matter of fact, it's a a strong uh, trend in international aeronautical circles. Now, this is not, uh, let's put it this way, on a high-level technologically advanced aeronautical circles, that the next big development in aeronautics, of course, there's obviously the SST, but the next big development in aeronautics will be the revival of, are you ready for it? The dirigible for intercontinental use Specifically, intercontinental uh, freight use. No passenger, but freight. Now, in fact, to, to you mean you don't know about this? Are you aware of this, Jerry? Well, I'll tell you how, for those of you who might be interested in it, there, there are at least four major companies uh, that are not only working actively on it, but one of them, I understand, uh, in England, has already uh, begun uh, construction on one. Now, uh, because actually the dirigible is a very, very uh, desirable piece of equipment uh, for many reasons. Uh, For one thing, it's a very efficient piece of gear, really. It uh, doesn't require much fuel. You see, one of the problems with with the heavier-than-air equipment, and that is everything that we fly in today, really, outside of the free balloons, that one of the problems in all heavier-than-air equipment is a simple matter of physics, that you use a great deal... (laughs) I don't know why I got started on this. <laughs> well, all right, all right. We might as well carry it out because because uh, uh, I'm I'm predicting this too. Uh, I'm always amazed at people who think that that Shepard deals with nostalgia, whereas actually somebody in a recent magazine, and, and I'm delighted that he finally did it, uh, pointed out that what I'm basically am is a futurist. That uh, that by Relating to incidents and occurrences and moments of, of my immediate past, I can translate those into terms of the future, what will eventually happen. And this is the only way a futurist works. A futurist cannot work unless he has a knowledge of the past. Uh, there's no conceivable way to do it. And uh, because uh, only upon history and upon various movements of the past can you predicate the, the future movements because they have, they observe always certain behavioral patterns <laughs> that are immutable, uh, just like uh, uh, lions will eventually want a, want, a, want a nice piece of rare meat, no matter how much you've worked on them to, tr- to, to, to convince them that what they should be is vegetarians, that the lion's history militates against the fact of him becoming a successful vegetarian. Do you agree with that? All right. But if you didn't know that, if you did not know the lion's history... You could be deluded into believing that the the lion is basically a vegetarian because the lion that you happen to be observing for the first time you're seeing a lion is eating a carrot. And they will do that occasionally. You can make a very bad mistake by believing on the momentary observation that lions eat carrots. Yes, indeed. So history is not a, a, a totally irrelevant tool if one wishes to understand not only the present but the future. So... Uh, Nevertheless, uh, getting back to the dirigible, <laughs> that the dirigible 
uh, is a good piece of equipment. Now, the dirigible is different from a balloon. I think a lot of people are confused. They, they think that anything that has that big thing up above the cab or the gondola is some kind of a, a blimp or a balloon. Now, the difference between a blimp and a dirigible is, is in the word itself. Dirigible means rigid. Uh, it has a rigid envelope, uh, whereas a blimp does not. A blimp is really, in a sense, a, 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 it's a shaped balloon. So when you see the Goodyear blimp, it's really a, a, a type of balloon. And by the way, I have a log time in a blimp. I'm one of the very few people around who can honestly point to his pilot's log book and say that I have log time in, uh, in N1A, which is the number one registration in aircraft in the United States. That's the number one license. Of course, all aircraft, in case you're not aware of it, have a federal license, just like the license on your car. But they're federally licensed. They're not state licensed. They're licensed by the federal government. And that license is fairly, uh, it remains fairly permanent. In other words, an aircraft gets its registration, and it will keep that registration throughout the life of the aircraft, even if it's sold to somebody else. You don't, it's not like a car where you get your own plates. In England, by the way, cars are licensed that way. Did you know that? They're permanently licensed. So if you buy a, a car, a Jaguar, let's say it's five, six years old, and it has the plates right on it, the registration is transferred to you, but the number, the registration number of that vehicle remains on it. That's why they have these permanent plates, you know, with the beautiful numbers and all that. That's the permanent registration of that car. Do you know that, Jerry? Uh, well, that's true of aircraft. So when you, whenever you, well, the next time you get on an airplane, and you might, might uh, I'll, I'll give you little things to look for. The next time you get on a, a commercial airplane, look for the federal license on it, the number on it. Uh, and, and, and they're required by law to be a minimum of 12 inches high. In other words, they can't make them any smaller, no matter how big the aircraft. And, and they're trying to make them so small you can't hardly see them, see, because somehow that mars the beauty of the, the design of the airplane. So they, you know, most airplanes have these fancy paint jobs and all that on them now, you know, with a great big sunburst of uh, one uh, airline on the tail, another one has a big flying bird and so forth. Well, here are these numbers are suddenly a jarring factor in it. So you'll find most of them are way back near the tail, and it has to be displayed. It is a federal, in fact, inter intercontinental registration thing. And so you'll see that number in the back, and all U.S. aircraft are registered with the number N before them. That's our international prefix. So any, any aircraft that you see flying that has N in the beginning of its numbering system is a U.S. aircraft. Now, there are others. For example, England has a G. So if you see uh, and they, they, they do not use numbers in their licensing. They use letters. So if you see uh, GCAXN, that's an English aircraft, uh, and it's registered in England. If you see a D, that is a German registration. Uh, if you see a C, for example, CF is a common one. That's Canadian. And uh, down the line. Now, our aircraft come out with, you know, they have the N on the front. Well, well... Uh, then after that, there's a series of numbers, usually four numbers, and often a, a, uh, a, uh, an alphabetical prefix or suffix, really, would be after that, which means, say, the aircraft could conceivably be N9373J, which in uh, U.S. terminology would be N9373Juliet. See, there's an international uh, alphabet that they use uh, for each word, so the word Juliet refers to J. Uh, S is Sierra. 
uh, and so on down the line. Each one has a certain name. So, in, in, in the case of a U.S. aircraft, occasionally you'll find a very short one. It'll be like a N96 uh, Juliet. That's a very short prefix, a very short uh, license, not prefix, but a very short registration. It's like having a low light, a number on your car. Uh, and in the lower down, until till you get to the very exotic ones, for example, like N1A. That's the number one license in the United States. That's like having a federal license number one. All right, you know there is such an aircraft. And that aircraft happens to be a Goodyear blimp. N1A is its number. And, uh, and that is the blimp Mayflower. Have you seen that one around? Mayflower. It's, it has a name on the tail. And, and how many Goodyear blimps are there? Do you know? Well, there are actually three right now. I believe there's a fourth under construction. It's being built, I believe, in Italy for Goodyear to be stationed in Italy. And uh, each one of these has a very low numbering, very low numbering like that. For example, the Mayflower is M1A. This is the one I flew. Uh, and I did fly the blimp. I actually flew it as the pilot. Uh, N1A. Uh, then there's N1B. And there's N1C. These are the three uh, Goodyear blimps. And uh, they're beautiful. They really are. Flying in a blimp is like no other flying I've ever known, ever. It, it by far beats gliding. Most people think gliding would be a fantastic experience. Well, it is up to a point. In fact, so is flying, I think, um, personally, very much so. But flying in a blimp has something else going for it because uh, there's no, uh, no way, for example, for you to take a glider and just to... To, to completely cut all the power and just let her just hang there. Just, she just hangs. Uh, a glider has to always be moving. It has to always constantly have a wind blowing past at the airstream, the flying speed, in other words, to keep up in the air there. But, gee, the great feeling of, of simply cutting all the power on this blimp and just letting her float. Just hangs there. Fantastic. It's tremendously uh, comfortable in the blimp. But anyway... Uh, that's beside the point, what I'm getting at. Now, a blimp does not have girders in it, you see. And the, and the, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an envelope. And uh, it's filled, in this case, in the, in the U.S. case, with helium. Well, the earlier uh, dirigibles that uh, were always exploding and burning, in fact, including the famous Hindenburg, uh, they, were, they were filled with hydrogen, which was, uh, is highly volatile. I mean, uh, oh, man, that's highly inflammable. The minute that hydrogen uh, is sparked off, forget it. I mean, you've got yourself some excitement in the lab. And uh, this is why one of the great problems with the dirigibles, uh, and, and they, they were, by the way, a German uh, study. The Germans made a great study of dirigibles, and in fact, Count Zeppelin himself was a German. And, uh, you know, Zeppelin, you've, uh, you've had, of course, uh, the Graf Zeppelin. Most people didn't know, the way, of course, the German word for count is Graf. So uh, the, the Graf Zeppelin was really translated Count Zeppelin was the name of the Zeppelin, very famous Zeppelin. Well, well these, these, uh, these vehicles had a great deal of appeal and still do to many people who are interested in flying. And, and, uh, and their, their primary problem, of course, was structure weaknesses when the great uh, uh, problems with that. And, and that was because the, a lot of them didn't have modern metals, modern technology, you see. They didn't have the kind of uh, 
of plastics and, and very strong metallic uh, stuff that we have developed through the space programs, which are highly, very, very strong and extremely light materials, which were not available at the time they built those things back in the 20s and, and the time of World War I. So they were really basically uh, using the metals available at the time, which were not nearly as effective as today's metals would be if they were to build the same thing. So the chances of it breaking up because of wind are highly reduced today. Now, on top of that, uh, you know that the, the only helium deposits, the major helium deposits in the world are here in the United States as a natural gas. And uh, they're in the state of Texas. And uh, for that reason, uh, due to the fact that the, that the, the Germans were in bad cess after World War I, it was, it was a, a rule passed that the Germans could not have helium. Uh, they would not allow helium to be sent anywhere else in the world because uh, the Germans had bombed London. Did you know any of this history? This is WOR New York. Well, let's see. We have Zitkit with us tonight. And uh, what this really boils down to is this, that it's a kit, if you have any skin problems, uh, it's a kit. It comes with three proven medicines. It's produced by Dermacon. And the three medicines are Dermacon Skin Cleanser, which uh, you do just exactly what it says with it, uh, clean your skin, so on. They have a Dermacon Medicated Lotion. It's a, it's a complete system, you see. You use all three of these things in rotation. You use the Dermacon Medicated Lotion during the day. Uh, it helps soften your skin and so on. And then you use the Dermacon Medicated Cream at night. Put that on at night when you're going to bed to help heal and soothe while you sleep. And the Zit Kit contains no harsh peeling agents. It's gentle, round-the-clock care. So give it a try. Uh, they say uh, for, you can give it a try for 30 days, and it costs less than 25 cents a day to try it. It's Zit Kit, Z-Z-Z-I-T-K-I-T, Zit Kit by Dermacon. And you can buy the Dermacon Zit Kit at Genovese, Whalen, Mac, Drug Guild, and other leading pharmacies. That's the Dermacon Zit Kit. just about everything in Sunday Newsday, but I guess that L.I. magazine is my favorite section. Those pleasure maps in L.I. are fantastic. The pull-out TV book covers the whole week. Now we don't have to buy one. These Long Islanders are talking about something very close to my heart. I'm Clive Irving, editor of L.I., the full-color magazine that comes with Sunday Newsday. As an Englishman in America, I'd like to tell you about something that has appeal in both our countries, a real bargain. In any language, Sunday Newsday is a fantastic buy for only 25 cents. On Sunday, you get more of everything. News, features, columns, sports, community service. You get L.I. magazine and color comics. You also get the pull-out TV book with a full week's listings, plus special guides to movies, sports shows, and children's programs. Sunday Newsday. We're very glad you like it. The Germans had bombed London with Zeppelins. In World War I, it was considered a terrible atrocity, and so for that reason, they didn't want anybody to be building Zeppelins. So they limited the... the, the in fact, they said, no more. Well, they, well, they send this helium around. So then the Germans had to use hydrogen, and naturally, they, uh, it was a very dangerous thing. So anyway, getting back to the story, I don't want to go into the history too much with this, but one of the reasons why Zeppelins have been looked upon with disfavor is largely a result of the fact that they were ahead of their time technologically. Uh, they were, uh, you know, they were flying this stuff when they really didn't have the equipment to do it with. Yeah, 
there was a lag. And, and it were also, of course, had that fantastic volatile gas hydrogen in them. And wow, they go up just like a Roman candle. But helium doesn't burn. Simply doesn't. It's a very safe gas. It doesn't have the lift capabilities quite of hydrogen, but it, it is safe. So uh, so now, let's get, let's get down to the now. Now, almost one of the great inefficiencies of jet planes, in fact, any type of aircraft, a power-driven, heavier-than-aircraft, is that a large amount of power must be used always to merely overcome gravity. In other words, just to get the thing off the ground and to keep it up because the natural tendency of any object which is heavier than air is to fall, right? <laughs> this is basic physics. No matter what you do, and especially when you have tons of metal in the air, like you have with a 747 or a 707, you've got to have a lot of power going all the time just to overcome gravity. Now, what if you have an airplane? Now, let me, let me, let me propose something to you. What if you had an airplane, a, 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 let's say a flying vehicle. We won't even call it an airplane. Let's say a flying vehicle, an airplane, we'll say that was made out of some magical material that was lighter than air, that its tendency was not to fall but to go up. That would be a fascinating airplane, wouldn't it, that, that you would have to tie it down on the airport because if you untied it, since it was lighter than air, it would, it would float. You see, the air, you have to think of the air as an ocean. Most people think of the air, they don't really think of it that way, but it's like the air is an ocean, and we're at the bottom of the ocean here on Earth. And, uh, and, and so, since most things are heavier than air, they will remain at the bottom. You're heavier than air. Uh, your, your, your hat is heavier than air. Uh, your, your shoe is heavier than air. It's just like if you were at the bottom of the ocean and uh, you had a, let's say you were down at the bottom, you had a flashlight, and you're down at the bottom, you're scuba diving. Well, your flashlight, if that flashlight is heavier than the water that surrounds it, that flashlight will just simply sink to the bottom if you let go of it. But if that flashlight is lighter than the water, what happens? You let go of it, and it goes right up to the top. It just bobs to the surface. Well, that's exactly what happens if you have a lighter-than-air airplane. And that airplane would just simply, with no power at all, if you just let it go, it's whoop, up she'd go. And, and how high she would go would, de would depend on how... Uh, dense the air is that it's going through. So when it reaches a point above the earth where it is no longer lighter than the air around it because the air around it is so thin that it too is quite light, it would then be at, at stability or equilibrium. It would be just like at the surface of the seas. It would just float there. You follow all this? Is this dull to you? <laughs> well, it may be to some people. I, I find that large numbers of people have absolutely no, no uh, curiosity about things around them. Uh, their curiosity is generally just about other people <laughs> you know, or, or, or themselves. But their curiosity stops right there. They're not interested in anything else. And uh, so those people, I'm sorry, we're going to drop you off tonight. You can go on back there to that in, interminable, interminable debate that's going on on other stations. Uh, <laughs> you know. But uh, nevertheless, if you're curious about what is about to happen in your world, and I think a lot of people are going to be astounded to find it out, all of a sudden, one day, it's going to burst on them that it's going to be announced that this the first dirigible is making its inter-ocean flight again. Everybody well, when did this happen? Say, well, you're, I'm telling you about it now. Whether you like it or not, it's going to be in your world. That the, that the dirigible is a very interesting piece of gear. And the only reason I went back and told you about this is because you understand what it, where it really involves. Now, a dirigible is different from a blimp in this respect. If you can imagine 
a very light envelope, an extremely light envelope. It's like if you can imagine. How, how can I? I have to take. I have to give you an analogy. If you can imagine taking a. Uh, uh, let's take a fish skeleton. You know how a fish skeleton looks? Very thin ribs. If you took a fish skeleton and you covered the skeleton over with a very thin pliofilm covering, you would have a very light piece of equipment, wouldn't you? And it would be long and quite, quite, it would be thick and round. As all the ribs and everything would be light. Now, if you took little tiny, uh, little tiny uh, globules, let's say little bitty balloons, and put them inside that fish skeleton, balloons containing helium, which is a gas which rises. You could even put uh, some other, maybe cooking gas, but let's take helium. That fish skeleton would rise. Now, actually, people could walk up and down. You could walk up and down inside that skeleton because it's not filled with gas. It has, it has, it has little bubbles in there that are filled with gas. And you could actually walk up and down and catwalks inside there, you see. Now, then, if you, if you attach to the bottom of that little fish skeleton a little tiny motor, a little propeller that would drive it through the air, not right, make it raise up or anything, just like a propeller that turns quite slowly compared to an aircraft propeller, that thing would then move forward. And it would take very little power actually to do it because it's extremely light. And it has a tendency anyway... Uh, to, to rise, so you don't have to use any power to get it up in the air. So, so here you've got the dirigible. That's, in effect, what a dirigible is. I've explained it to you now. All right. Now, I don't like to sound patronizing, but I simply don't, I, I simply don't think many people know what they are. They, they, they think a dirigible is a blimp. Uh, blimp uh, they don't know the difference. Now, a blimp would be simply if you took a balloon, if you went out to the park and bought a balloon, and you shaped it like a cigar and you put a motor under it, that would be a blimp. That's really a blimp, in effect. Uh, and, and for that reason, the, the blimp uh, is really just a controlled balloon. Now, it has been believed by a lot of people for a long time that the dirigible would be a tremendous piece of gear to use purely for freight. Now, you see, the passengers, the reason that the dirigibles lost out in the intercontinental business years ago was because they were used primarily for passengers. And so, so uh, a couple hundred people would get on the Hindenburg, or I, I don't know, I guess they carried 140 or 135, something like that. And by the way, there's a very, very good book on the subject. In case you, if you want to read an exciting book, there's a, there's a, there's a book simply called, uh, it's published by Dodd Mead, and it's called, I think it's either called Zeppelin or Hindenburg. Well, it's just one word title. It's very exciting. It's a moment by moment the, the description of what happened to that that airship when it crashed over here in in Lakehurst, New Jersey. But uh, yeah, it crashed. In, was it Lakehurst or Lakewood? Lakehurst, I believe. It's over here. Yeah, Lakehurst, Lakewood, Lakewood. I don't know. It's either Lakehurst or Lakewood. I'm not. I'm not sure. But it, it, over here on the Jersey Shore. Yeah. But nevertheless. Uh, that that whole phenomenon, it stopped. That was the last thing. The, the minute that that one crashed and blew up, that uh, stopped the whole thing. Nobody's ever done anything with them since. Now, since that time, though, aeronautic engineers have discovered, of course, a lot of new materials. And, and they, 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 they make these trips quite rapidly. An air, a, a ship like that would travel across the ocean 
at a speed, an average speed of around 100 miles an hour, between 85 and 100, 110, depending on whether it got a tailwind. That's very fast, really. No ship could ever do that. Uh, no way for a freighter to, to, to make that kind of mileage, you know, 100 miles an hour. No freighter's going to do that. And yet, it certainly is far outstripped by an airplane. But the airplane, you see, is quite an expensive proposition. So if you were to send freight from here to London by an airplane, it's, it's still very expensive to do that because of all that power that has to be used, fantastic amounts of fuel and all of this to get that from point A to point B. But in the case of a Zeppelin, they have a great load-carrying capacity, by the way. Uh, so they could load a lot of freight on a Zeppelin and just uh, maybe a, a, a small, comparatively small crew, maybe four or five guys operating this thing. And this huge Zeppelin, maybe uh, eight, 900 feet long as they were, that Zeppelin moving across with very safe gases like helium, for example, uh, made out of uh, highly, uh, uh, very strong, high tensile strength plastics, you know what the covering of the of the Zeppelins were. I wonder how many people even know that. They had a very light muslin covering. The actual covering of a Zeppelin, say like the Hindenburg when it crashed, was cloth. And it was sprayed with dope. Uh, it was painted silver so it would reflect the light. Uh, and it was sprayed with dope and painted over and over until it was fairly stiff. But it was very, very burnable. <laughs> and uh, uh, But... See, they have modern, with, with modern plastics, you can imagine a skin, can't you, of a Zeppelin that is not uh, cloth any longer, but is a plyofilm that's actually like, you know, like, a, like a, a very tough, thin plastic covering that, that does not burn. Have you ever tried to burn one of these plastic garbage bags? They won't burn, you see. So it's, it's tough and strong, and it's very light, comparatively. And can be repaired very easily. And this is this is easy stuff to repair. So that would be a very interesting piece of gear, especially if it had very strong plastic ribs. Uh, <laughs> that thing is quite interesting. So so they are they are they're feeling that within a very short time, within probably before the end of this decade, there will be the first major flights of the new inter intercontinental dirigibles. And you know what the prediction is? The prediction is that by after the year 2000, that that uh, by by various Im improvements in the in the uh, in the breed, that by the year 2000, that the dirigible will have again practically outmoded the airplane, and the even the SST except for special usages, it will have outmoded the airplane as a primary means of intercontinental travel. You see, because using the air. Using the technique uh, that they have, there'd be no problem, really, to put a lot of people in this thing instead of a lot of gear and equip them with, uh, you know, minimal food, a few box lunches here and there, and the, tr the trip would be very cheap. Uh, that, the, that the trip would be very inexpensive compared to flying in an airplane. Put five or six hundred people in this baby. <laughs> and just, they'd go drifting across the ocean. Sure, they wouldn't make it in, in, uh, in five hours the way an airplane makes it today, but... In exchange for that, it may only cost you twenty, twenty-five dollars. May take you two days or three days, but think of the think of the difference. You see, it's a fantastic difference, uh, much cheaper, and and it, it, it's going to revolutionize. A lot of people feel that that is going to revolutionize our world more than anything ever since the radio or the television or anything else has come into it, because they figured that by the year two thousand, especially when they have these babies powered with nuclear power, which even in itself does not even use fuel. 
They could cruise practically indefinitely. Just keep going on and on and on. Did you know that the, that the Graf Zeppelin made trips, on non-stop trips, of over 10,000 miles? Well, very few aircraft do that. In fact, I don't think any aircraft has done that yet, have they? A non-stop trip without refueling or anything in the air? 10,000 miles? Fantastic. <laughs> without stopping. I mean, you could get on one of these babies and fly all the way around to Australia, not even stop once. <laughs> just keep right on going. You just sit in there, and uh, they get to drift along, and they play their eternal movie in there for you to keep you happy and to give you a little ping-pong to play or something, you know, and, and the string orchestra, maybe, you know, playing something, and there, there you go, you know. And uh, this this is a very interesting uh, subject, uh, that, that, you know, predicting what will happen eventually technology-wise. And a lot of the stuff that's that's coming out of... Uh, out of the so-called space technology is really just means of improving various materials. That's actually what space technology involves. And so they figure that ultimately it's possible to, to create a Zeppelin. Now, this, this really boggles the mind. It's possible to, to, to create a Zeppelin that not only uh, is extremely cheap to operate, but uses no crew at all. It's totally... Radio and radar and uh, electronically controlled where the thing has about as much personality as, let's say, an escalator at Macy's, which operates without any human being, just a machine taking you. And so you would get on this thing just the way you get on a moving staircase. Isn't that a fantastic idea? Everybody, everybody would board this thing, and when everybody's aboard it, automatically there may be a couple of guys called conductors or something who are trained in case of any kind of problem to throw this switch or that switch, and it, it goes on automatic or takes it off automatic and puts it on manual control. And then that, the thing is, uh, the thing closes up by itself, gains altitude, flies across the ocean, comes down, lands, another crowd gets on it, and the other crowd got off, and it just keeps going back and forth. There's an automatic machine, back and forth, back and forth. And they, they wind up with these machines going in like of 100 different directions all the time. And this thing just comes down. Now, that sounds incredible. You know, you say, oh, come on, it's ridiculous. No, it is not ridiculous. In fact, it is very feasible. Uh, it would be very, very, very safe, too. Very little thing, very little could happen to the thing. And if, if anything did, let's assume it lost power. Okay? You know what they would do with that in that case, then? Let's assume it's, it's lost power. It's drifting now. It's not going to come down. I think it's not... Yeah, it just drifts. So immediately there would be a, a repair vessel would just take out, would, 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 would tow onto the thing and just tow it back, just like, uh, you know, <laughs> no problem. You just sit there and it just tows it in. And so, so the idea of any, any fantastic disaster occurring is minimal in a thing like this, really. Uh, the, the gas is in, uh, not flammable. Uh, but the only thing that could happen, really, it would be if, if this thing were caught in a, in a major unpredicted uh, tornado or something, in which case, of course, it's going to be disaster for anything. But I suspect, though, that with the advanced weather techniques, which they figure that are going to be available by the year 2000, you see, that's another thing that's being cured, that a lot of this space technology involves weather research. And so by the year 2000, it is quite conceivable that satellites will be able to almost instantaneously spot the development of a tornado and automatically operate the navigational systems and steer everything that's in the air at that time around that problem. How do you like them apples? <laughs> in other words, it would, be, it would be impossible for your dirigible to go into a tornado because uh, the, the, 
the various types of very sophisticated weather equipment has spotted the development of this thing well before it even actually starts, that the conditions are right for a tornado to occur. That doesn't mean there's even one there. So automatically, this thing radios the proper codes into the various navigational systems around the world, and, and, and automatic equipment takes over, and your equipment, your actual airplane or whatever you're in, automatically then begins to, to steer a new course around that, and the pilot can do nothing about it. Uh, it's, it's automatic. Now, how do you like them apples? That's already in the works. In fact, they've already tested equipment very similar to that. So, so by the year 2000, there's no way of knowing what us, anybody who's around at this time, how we will actually travel by that time. Uh, even though people tend to think it's going to become more of the same, more of the same. Not at all. No, no, there's big, vast changes coming. But in fact, uh, they also predict that, that by the year 2000, the automobile, as we know it today, and that, the year 2000 isn't that far. After all, it's uh, 28 years. Uh, by the year 2000, many scientists uh, that are in the field predict that the, the automobile that we know today will be as outdated as the Venetian gondola uh, <laughs> or the Viking ship. Uh, it's, it's, it, you know, it, there'll be a few around uh, the, as curios and people will go to the park. Uh, kids will actually be taking them to ride in an actual automobile. <laughs> you know, and, and everybody will be very curious about it, and uh, they'll talk about the old days when people really did drive those around. They'll be amazed at them. But, uh, but the form of transportation, because after all, transportation in the modern world, and uh, it always was actually a problem, but uh, in the modern world is probably the number one human, uh, I suppose you might say, drive. Man is by nature a, a moving creature, by nature. And so the drive to move, the drive to, 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 uh, to change your, your place from A to B has been noted among the very earliest of tribes, among the earliest of animals. You see, most that's another thing that sets us apart from a lot of the other animals, which have a set range. In other words, uh, there's, there's, no, no, uh, there's, no, there's no evidence that shows that, let's say, uh, the, uh, the zebra has a great desire to visit Chicago. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the zebra remains where it is and wants to remain where it is. But whereas man has always, from the very earliest of days, uh, all his great literature is about travel. What do you think the Odyssey is about, for God's sakes? Uh, that, 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 that the urge to travel is, is part of man's nature. And, and so, since this is so, along with the desire to procreate, this is so, along with desire, the desire to continue to live, in other words, uh, self-preservation, uh, the desire to eat, these are all basic desires. So the, the, the transportation thing, no matter what Ralph Nader says, is going to continue to be one of man's chief hang-ups. Always has been, always will be. No way to legislate it out. It's like legislating sex out of existence like trying to pass a law that man no longer will be interested in eating. After all, eating produces a lot of waste byproducts which we do not like. So hence, we're going to put it out of existence. No, it will not work. It will always remain. It may change and will change drastically. Uh, it always has changed. So by the time, by the time we, we hit the year 2000, because there's been an escalating, almost a logarithmical development in technology. For thousands of years, things happened at a very slow rate. But with the increase of uh, 
of uh, instantaneous communication. Things happen very rapidly now. So one guy makes a discovery in the laboratory on Wednesday. By Friday night, every laboratory in the world knows about it and is already working on their version of it. So this is <laughs> this has changed things. So by the year 2000, there's no way of knowing what kind of transportation we will have. There's a lot of people have theories about it. A lot of people think it's going to be railroads and stuff. Well, uh, no one knows. There's, there's no way of knowing uh, that, that it's quite conceivable that our, our, our nation could be crisscrossed with a whole series of, uh, of uh, invisible radar tracks and uh, that, that everybody will have access or will be able to get to uh, various types of radar-controlled capsules which will whisk you across one part of the country into another area through another lane, and, and of course you're paying as you go, naturally. They say by the year 2000, money itself will be completely gone, that, that, that we, will live, we will have a system of, of universal, we will, at birth, we will be given a universal federally controlled credit number, and that all our salaries and monies that we may earn are just numbers on a big, vast thing, and this is go, goes into a vast, uh, you might call it an international bank, and uh, wherever you go, you have this card, which is, which uh, relates to that card ultimately back into the headquarters. <laughs> and uh, oh yeah, this is this is all in the works. There's already plans for that. In fact, that's already started. So by the year 2000, as you get in there, you insert your card as you get into this capsule, and depending on how far you go, that's how much you're charged. And when you get out, to get out, you have to insert your card again, and so they know that you've gone 800 miles, and automatically, uh, electronic uh, little triggers go and 800 miles of travel on uh, radar VF Route 3 are automatically uh, charged against your account per mile. And uh, if you go in and have a meal aboard this capsule, you just insert it in the, in the little thing, and bam, 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 zap. Uh, the meal is served, and automatically it's, it's put on the, the vast, uh, eternal, moving pliofilm record. <laughs> what happens if you go broke? Well, that's an interesting thing. You know what would happen if you go broke? I suspect... That, they, that that would automatically reject your card. In other words, yes. How, how does it do it? Well, because this is not a simple card that you put in a slot. This is a card that actuates instantaneously various types of magnetic and or electronic sensors. So if your card goes in, that means you're automatically, your credit is good. If your card is, if the thing spits your card out, they don't, you, just, you just don't get in. It spits it out. <laughs> so, so uh, how do you like them apples? So uh, you'll not be able to fake your way. You know, you say, I'm Charlie, and then you show them your card because the automatic, uh, the, 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 char the, the card rejector will be as important as the card selector. So as you put your card into the slot, if that card is, is, is rejected automatically, because you see, this is an almost instantaneous system. That, that, that the, that, let's say you have card number 422D. And so you put your card in the slot, and instantaneously a, 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 it is flashed to the main headquarters that card 422D has now reported in at capsule 12. And if uh, there is a block against 422D, automatically a thing is actuated in that lock that refuses to allow your card to go in. It just, pow, and out it comes. And also a, a, a fist wearing a boxing glove comes out of the side of the thing and hits you in the mouth. <laughs> oh, man. So, uh, <laughs> if that's nostalgia, friends, so be it. Uh, I, I, I suspect, though, that uh, there's another aspect to it. 
But I hope this doesn't bore you, but it doesn't bore me. I mean, you're constantly, I'm amazed at what's, you know, I'm watching to see what's happening. And the trend today, of course, is, is more involved, sophisticated, and more spectacularly unpredictable mass transportation systems. This will be, and there will, there will eventually be great companies that will develop that we don't even know about today, which uh, create this equipment. Has it occurred to you that in the year 1880 that they never even heard of the Ford Motor Company? <laughs> it's a, this giant thing, you know, or General Motors, giant thing. And uh, during, during Abe Lincoln's day, they never heard of AT&T, but we sure heard of it. And so by the year 2000, there's going to be companies you don't even know about, friend, that are going to operate these vast machines that whip you here and there around. It's not a happy thought, yet it may be a happy Who knows, you know? Who's going to predict what you're going to think even in those days? Yeah, this is WOR New York. You stay tuned for Lester Smith and the News. That I predict. He's coming. on the hour from the WOR newsroom, President Nixon and Soviet Communist Party leader Brezhnev conferred today 24 hours in advance of the scheduled formal talks. The two leaders simply agreed that the summit conversations were of vital importance. Mr. Nixon's arrival at the airport outside Moscow was described as cool but correct. About 100,000 persons lined the streets to welcome the president, the first United States head of state ever to visit the Soviet capital. The first day of negotiations were uneventful, Apparently, all they did was lay the groundwork, though they did talk for about an hour and three quarters. Later in the day, a banquet was held at the Kremlin, and Mr. Nixon criticized veiled criticism. The Soviet Union is a military supplier to Vietnam. President Nikolai Podgorny responded by saying that Moscow and Washington must work together to establish better and friendly relations. The meeting between the president and Brezhnev was described by Moscow Radio as frank, businesslike, the crowd that greeted the president bears the description of curious but not exuberant. But it was a far bigger turnout than greeted Mr. Nixon on his arrival in Peking. The reception was televised across Moscow. Mr. and Mrs. Nixon were guests at a Kremlin dinner tonight. First class, decor and food, which included caviar, smoked salmon, beef filet, red and white wines, champagne and brandy. The president put on a big smile during the dinner, but said little. And of course, in addition to the other drinks, there was vodka. No word on how much was consumed. According to an unidentified White House source, North Vietnam is feeling the pinch of the mining of its ports and the escalation of the bombing of the North. The official who made the disclosure to newsmen declined to put his name on the record. The source said the North is running short on food, is encountering widespread black marketeering, and prostitution is rampant. The source, whoever he is, made his disclosure to newsmen reading from documents marked top secret. As for the North Vietnamese military offensive, the source said, it is still too early to call it a failure, but it is way behind schedule in achieving its objective. He declined to predict whether the holding by the South Vietnamese means a quick end to the war. Who is the White House source making the remarks? No clue from the copy. The briefing by the White House source came on the heels of articles transmitted from Hanoi 
by New York Times correspondent Anthony Lewis. He had reported the opposite, that the mining and the bombings had had no visible effects on Hanoi's morale or ability to carry on the war, and that life in general in North Vietnam had not been seriously disrupted. A good report on Alabama's Governor George Wallace. He is feeling some activity in his legs for the first time since he was shot down a week ago. As doctors put it, there is some involuntary muscular activity to the toes of both feet. Though encouraging to them, the doctors are reluctant to say whether the governor will ever be able to walk again. They will not know until the surgery is performed to remove the bullet from his spine. Paying a visit today to Governor Wallace, Vice President Spiro Agnew. The governor is very alert and uh, is talking... Uh... A lot about politics, of course, and uh, we had a long conversation. I congratulated him on his primary victories. And we just generally talked about our 